series of nine programmes called Fiction at the Friary and on Campus. Recorded on location in UCC and at the Friary Bar in Cork City. We are now standing outside on Bohan. The 2018 National Famine Commemoration took place in University College Cork. A sod cabin, also known as Unbohan, was built adjacent to the original university buildings of the 1840s. Completed in March 2018, the sod cabin serves as an evocative monument to the Great Famine, also known as Ungarter Moor. Unbohan is a recreation of the lowest form of housing officially recorded in Ireland during the 19th century. Census returns categorise these structures as fourth-class houses, comprising all mud cabins having only one room. The 1841 census records that Ireland had 1.3 million houses in total. Of that, 492,000 were classified as fourth-class houses. The lowest standard of house in the third-class category was also of poor quality, comprising all mud cabins with two rooms. An analysis of the statistics of fourth-class category, combined with an estimate of the number of mud cabins in the third-class category, indicates that it is likely that two million people were living in these conditions or worse in 1841. 95% of four-class housing had disappeared from Ireland by early 1900. Sod cabins were constructed by the rural poor with little or no resources. Grass sods would have been stripped by hand from the field using the traditional Irish spade known as a loy or a more basic implement. Typically, the cabin housed generations of the same family. A fire provided heat, and was also used for cooking. In many cases, the cabin had neither chimney nor window. If the cabin became wet and damp, it rotted and collapsed on top of its already vulnerable occupants. The majority of the misery associated with the famine occurred in and around the cabins. The tradition of building sod houses were carried by Irish migrants to America and Australia. The term shanty Irish or shanty town is believed to have derived from shanty, meaning old house in Gaelic. The sod cabin in UCC was built by our own buildings and estates team and the building materials were sourced in UCC using readily available organic materials. On Bohan, a UCC is the only structure of its kind in the country. It promotes traditional Irish building craft and demonstrates the ingenuity of building a house out of extremely limited resources. Just as the origins of the iconic American log cabin may be traced back to Scandinavia, the sod shanties on the plains of America show a strong Irish tradition. Here's Catherine Kerwin, crime novelist. Catherine, it's a pleasure to have you here, and um, uh, you've chosen to read in the Bohan at UCC today. Um, your novel, Darkest Truth, has uh, uh, done wonderfully well, and it's the one city, one book um, for Cork this year. Um, uh, 
read why did you become uh, fascinated with um, something entirely different actually the history of um, the Bahan um, well I, I in the piece I say that I saw, saw it one May evening as I was walking through UCC and it was just a complete surprise uh, because I walked through UCC quite a lot in the evening um, and especially when the weather is fine, it's a beautiful walk and I know what to expect as I round the corner from the President's Garden and it wasn't that so I just got a complete surprise then but the other thing was that the feeling I had when I saw it was also recognition. I felt that I knew it, even though I didn't know it at all. And when I read the notice, I kind of thought, I didn't know Irish people lived like that. I, I had the, the quiet man cottage in my head, um, the little stone cottage, and maybe a bad version of it. I hadn't realised that it was um, that my ancestors, all our ancestors, had lived in houses made of earth. Back in prehistory, yes, mm -hmm. but not in not that recently. And what are you? What are your links with UCC, Catherine? Apart from walking through it on your way home from work occasionally. Well, I'm a graduate of UCC. I did law here, and um, I also live nearby now. I moved back quite near UCC about ten years ago, nine years ago, and so I come to events in the college quite a lot and I walk through the college quite a lot and I've set a couple of scenes from my book here in my, my novel Darkest Truth um, in the stone corridor and in the staff common room and things like that. So um, yes, I've got lots of links and great affection for UCC. The Bahan seems to have settled quite firmly um, in your head and in your heart, I think. Will we be meeting this or perhaps that period of history again, maybe in some of your future fiction? I don't know about the fiction. At the moment, I don't feel like it's at a fictional stage, um, but it's. I've written a huge amount about the Bohan myself. Um, I've done loads of, uh, I won't say research, but yeah, I suppose you could call it research on it. I've written like about 10 times what I've read here today. Um, and it goes off in all kinds of odd directions. And I developed quite an obsession about it, um, which kind of became quite an unhealthy obsession for a while. But it somehow, uh, kind of working through it was really helpful to me. So I, I kind of, I'm only now, I think, starting to really process what it all means. And I think there might be a future nonfiction piece, but not at the moment. But I don't know, we'll see. I like the way you use the word obsession there. I think obsession applies to lots of what we do in our writing work. And I'm wondering if you experience a similar obsession when the idea for darkest truth came to you first. Um, yeah, I mean, I think the, the only reason you start a novel, and you, well, the, certainly the only reason you finish a novel is because you're interested in it, and to some extent you enjoy it, even though there may be tortuous moments uh, during the writing of it. Um, and I'm now writing my second novel, and there's been plenty of torture um, even already <laughs> on that. So, yeah, I do think you get obsessed with it, and I think you can't stop thinking about it then when it's going on. 
Um, and then it's also good to take breaks as well from it. So I've been away, say, even from the Bahan in my thoughts for a while because I've been working on my new book. And even as I'm walking here today, I'm already kind of recalibrating how I feel about it. Um, and, um, I'm, you know, this weekend I'm taking a break from writing my novel. And I think that will give me a chance to recalibrate how I feel about that. So it's all about... Um, coming to the obsession and then stepping back from it and then going back into it again. Back to the old house. I saw it on a bright evening in May 2018 as I walked through the leafy gardens of University College Cork. There it was, a small house made of grass. A printed sign explained that it was an example of a Bohan Doiba, a one-room cabin constructed of sods of earth and wood and that 40% of the houses in Ireland at the start of the Great Famine in 1845 had been like this one. A Bohan. I knew the word, no more than that. Over the next few days I asked around and discovered that the Bohan had been built in honour of the National Famine Commemoration. A while later, I met Mike Murphy from the School of Geography in UCC under the main arch that leads into the quad. The royalist carvings above the arch overlooking the Bohan, a lion representing England and a unicorn in chains representing Scotland, were defaced with chisels by engineering students during the 1930s, around the same time that the statue of Queen Victoria was taken down from the apex of the eastern gable of the Ola Maxima for fear that she might be blown up. Later she was buried in the President's Garden and only dug up again in 1994. Mike undid the combination lock and we went in. The Bohan's walls are thick. There is a low fieldstone base and on top of that are laid cut clay sods on a wood frame. I had to bend my head to get in the door, but once inside I was able to stand to my full height without difficulty. I'm five foot seven, slightly taller than the average height for an Irishman in 1845. The roof is made from rough branches pulled from ash trees and stretched across the space between the walls, forming a lattice across which more clay sods are laid. There are no windows. It is dark. I told Mike about an account I'd read in Sean and Sheila Murphy's book on the famine of a visit by Lady Louisa of Waterford to a Bohan and how she had found people sleeping on what she called heath. Yes, Mike said, Heather, rushes. Often they didn't have anything else. For the Bohan to stay standing you had to keep it dry. As people weakened with hunger there was a greater danger of collapse because there was no one to forage to keep the fire going. There were reports of people going to collapsed cabins during the famine and the stench would have been terrible, finding everyone dead inside, three generations. They'd often find the mother near the entrance. She was usually the last to die and would shut the door. The image of the woman closing the door on herself and her dead family hit me hard. I felt my eyes water. Why were the mothers the last to die, I asked. They were tougher, he said. How did this Bohan come to be, I asked. We've been working on famine projects in UCC for 25 years, he said. The census data told us about the types of houses people lived in, going from the first class house 
which had a minimum of 10 front-facing windows, to the second class, which had five front-facing windows, and then the third class, which went from a solid thatched farmer's cottage to a two-room mud hovel. Lastly came the fourth class, the Bohan, a single-room cabin made of organic natural material. Look at the famine memorial in Manhattan, Mike continued. It's an Irish cottage, brought over stone by stone from Mayo, but it's not a fourth-class house. In some areas, 80% of the dwellings were fourth-class houses. People aren't aware of them, so we built one. A German man, Christian Helling, under the supervision of Ross O'Donovan, an engineer from the Building and Estates Department here in college, did it. We scaled it against a photograph of a Bohan taken in County Louth. The poorest of the poor would have just dug a hole and lived in it. This cabin has a stone base. Not all of them would have had that. What was your idea of the Bohan before it was built, I asked. I wanted it to stay up, Mike said. People thought it would fall. But as well as the danger of it falling, there was a risk of it becoming something like something out of Darby O'Gill and the Little People, like a stage set. We were worried that it might be trivialised or that students might be swinging out of it. None of that happened and it's taken on a life of its own now. He pointed to the path worn in the grass by all of the people visiting the Bohan. What about the location? I asked. The main reason was practicality. The commemoration was to be held in the quad. But we were aware of the symbolism too, that the quad was built during the famine and that the university opened in 1849. He touched a bend on one of the ash branches holding up the roof. Prince Charles hit his head off that, he said. When he was in the college, he came to see the Bohan. He wasn't supposed to come in, but I asked him if he'd like to, and I had a torch that I'd bought in Lidl inside the door, just in case he agreed. He said yes straight away. His security people were walking up and down outside doing their nut. <laughs> Charles visited UCC in June 2018 at a time of deteriorating Anglo-Irish relations as part of a post-Brexit referendum charm offensive. In May 2018, the Irish Times had reported an interview by Robert Peston with Brexiteer Jacob Rees-Mogg. Mr Peston saying, Ireland has undermined the issue of Ireland in so many different ways has undermined British governments, you know, going back well over a hundred years now. Mr Rees-Moggs responded by suggesting that the issue of Ireland had undermined British politics for much more than a hundred years. It's a very long and complex history. It was Charles's great-great-grandmother Victoria who was queen during the famine, Mike said. At the time there was great wealth across the water, but this Bohan is how people were living. British citizens, supposedly, Victoria drove up the Western Road and was shown the new university called after her. The Queen's College it was then, but she didn't get out of her carriage because of the cholera epidemic. There is a pamphlet about it in the City Archive. Victoria visited Cork on the 3rd of August 1849, the same day she changed the name of Cove to Queenstown. The pamphlet refers to the devastating effects of a visitation of Providence. A visitation of Providence is not how Mike Murphy views the famine. I'd see parallels internationally with other man-made famines, he said. Famines as a result of war, like what's going on in Yemen. And what about Skibreen, I asked. The most famous 
famine sang of all. O son, I loved my native land with energy and pride, till a blight came over all my crops, my sheep and cattle died. He wasn't living in a bahan. It's not representative, is it? Not a bit, Mike said. He added, you know, you look back at the drawings from the time and you think they looked like different people to us. And then you look at the names, our names, and you realise they weren't. I talked to Ross O'Donovan, the engineer who had supervised the building of the Bohan. The popular image of 19th century Ireland is the whitewashed stone thatched cottage, Ross said. The reality of the rural vernacular building of the period was quite different. The last of the sodden turf houses disappeared in the 1940s and are gone from popular memory. We sourced the construction material from the UCC estate, all within a kilometre, Ross went on. There was no material cost. That was the reality of the resources available to the poor in 19th century Ireland. I asked Ross how prone a Bahan would be to fire. The fire would have been lit in the middle of the cabin, uh, he said. In engineering, we talk about a fire load. In a Bahan, the fire load would be very high, the confined space the bedding made of rushes or other organic material. And if the flames got as far as the roof, it would just take off. Ross told me that cabin interiors were lined with soot, that living in one would have been like living inside a chimney. He also told me something that started me thinking differently about the Bohan. Throughout antiquity, the Irish were renowned builders of sod and turf construction, he said. Newgrange, one of Ireland's greatest treasures, has a sod roof. It's from that heritage that sod and turf cabins were derived. The history of the, of the iconic American log, log cabin can be traced to Scandinavia. What's less well known is that the Irish diaspora brought the tradition of sod building to North America. The word shanty derives from the Irish words shanty or shantyach, meaning old house. In the prairies, where there, there are no trees, a million sod homes appeared as first-generation homes. The Germans, who settled the Great Plains, picked up the building technology from the early Irish settlers. I had been viewing the Bohan as a product of a vanquished and exploited people, a signifier of poverty and deprivation. It is all that. But it's something more, too. It reaches back to that old, lost Gaelic Ireland. The Bohan, the ultimate eco-house with its ingenious zero-cost construction, sheltered us over centuries. Arguably, it should be revered in the same way as the Curragh is. At the very least, the Bohan should be remembered. I spoke to my friend Mick Monk, an archaeologist. After a Bohan falls, what remains, I asked. Nothing, Mick said. The rain washes everything away. In these buildings, the roof goes first, then the walls. The clay melts back into the ground and the wood rots. If you're Irish, the chances are that some or all of your ancestors lived in a Bohan and survived. A year and a half after it was built, the UCC Bohan has survived too. Come see it. today is the fabulous Anne Griffin and uh, she has come all the way from Westport yesterday 
and she's won the uh, Newcomer of the Year at the uh, Unpost Book Awards this week. Um, and uh, for those who haven't read the book, it is about, it's Morris Hannigan, he's 84, and he sits to the bar of his local hotel to drink five toasts to the five most important people in his life. And he is basically telling the story um, to his son, but his son isn't present, so actually he's telling the story to his son in his head. So um, basically I'm going to read... Um, from a toast, it is the second toast, and it's to Molly. Molly is his uh, baby daughter who is stillborn. Um, but uh, the significance of, of Molly here is that Morris has continued to imagine Mo Molly all of her life. So she is, she is a presence in his life, although she is dead. So he sees her at different points in her life. And she is a really, really important person to, to Morris. He's full of guilt about her death, um, but she is like, um, she is the conscience that sits on his shoulder. And what is also significant is that Morris encounters the manager of the local hotel. And he has a long history with this, with this woman's uh, grandparents and uh, great-grandparents. Um, but for some reason, and to his absolute disgust, this woman, Emily, reminds him of Molly. And against his better judgment, he kind of falls in love with her and thinks she is just wonderful. So this is taken from this piece um, where he meets Emily for the first time. And we kind of get a glimpse of what has happened before in the family to cause such hatred um, of, of her family by Morris. Okay. At first I thought I was going a bit mad, thinking she was like Molly. But over the months when I got to know her more, the feeling didn't change. In fact, if anything, it got stronger. It was her character, her graciousness, her courageousness with life, thrown as she was into this place. Her life choices taken from her so young. There she was, her father having died, left with a broken-hearted mother and a hotel to run. Hilary, the mother, hadn't an ounce of interest in it, Emily told me later, had been dead set against it becoming a hotel in the first place. In fact, when she'd first met Jason in Dublin in his family-owned hotel, she thought she'd found her way out. A way to be rid of the crumbling house. Rachel and Reggie, her parents, seemed to hate it as much as her. If that's what he wants, Hilary, let him have it, Rachel had told her daughter when she'd first heard of Jason's plan. Frankly, I don't care what he does, I just want heat. For once in my lifetime, in this blasted place, I would like to feel warm. If he can manage that, then he can build a bloody zoo. Emily's legacy, the Rainsford House Hotel. Had she lived, Molly, that is, I believe she would have lived her life like Emily, always writing things and sorting things with that same selflessness. I feel she'd have taken her father in hand. I might be a different man altogether. I'm not the ogre they make me out to be, you know. I said that first day as I stood across from Emily, 
She lowered her head to the computer to make the booking for your stay. I didn't say you were. You didn't have to. I paused, searching her face, wondering if she might let me in at all. It was an odd sensation, this worrying about what others thought of me. It was all just business, you know, buying the land, nothing personal. I cocked then and felt myself floundering around like some fish washed up on a beach. But somehow I got myself together and said this. It can't be easy with your father gone. She stopped what she was doing and looked at me for what seemed like ages, like she was trying to figure me out. She said nothing. I was a bit stumped as to where to go from there. It was then I noticed her tears. She leaned her elbows on the desk and sobbed. Funny, isn't it what you remember in those moments of panic? It was the sound of jingling coins. I must have had my hands in my pockets boostering with my money while I stood looking at her like a mute gum. Ah, here, I might have managed. Or maybe I stretched out my hand on the counter to attempt some kind of useless comfort. Wait there, I do remember saying after a bit. When things weren't looking like they were getting any better, I'd be back. I went to the bar, returning with two bushmills, only to find her missing. Bold as you like, I went around the counter and knocked on the office door. Not waiting for a reply, I opened it to find her with her head still in her hands at a desk. Drink this, I said, as I placed the whiskey beside her. It'll steady you. She looked at it, then me. Smelt it before taking some and grimacing. Takes a bit of getting used to, all right, I said, having a healthy mouthful of my own. They hate you, Mr. Hannigan, she said, after swallowing her second mouthful. You paid them far too little for far too much. That's what they've always told me. And they're not wrong. I'm a businessman, and I'll not apologise for that. Surprisingly, she gave the briefest of smiles. She was more composed now, sitting back in her seat. She gestured to a chair opposite, at the other side of the desk. I took it and sat as she tapped her fingernails at her glass, watching the liquid shiver under the impact. It killed him. This place, this bloody dream of his, it killed my father, she continued, not looking at me but at the whiskey, before tipping it back, shuddering, and laying the empty glass on the desk before her. We are in debt, up to our necks, she added, speaking to the empty tumbler, and my mother... And what can I say? She's broken-hearted and totally out of it. She can't face the mess, losing money hand over fist in a hotel that no one will want to buy. You're trying to sell. Oh, it's not on the market, not yet anyway. That's what I'm here for, to try to figure it all out. Mother's drugged up to the eyeballs, so it's just me. It's all up to me. She looked about her, surveying her empire. And look at the fine job I'm doing. She laughed as her hand gestured enthusiastically in my direction while those big, clear eyes of hers came to rest on mine, confessing all to the enemy. Does that make you happy, Mr. Hannigan? She asked, leaning into the desk towards me to know that we are at last about to fall. What more had I expected from her to be forgiven for what I'd done to them? For the satisfaction I had felt as each piece of land they lost became mine. 
for checking the land registry in the county council every year or so to see my name as owner of what once was theirs. Did I expect this young girl, who I imagined as my own not ten minutes ago, to say none of that mattered? That her father's death could not be laid at my door? I sat there, my whiskey not yet gone, letting the silence, save for the hum of the computer sitting on her desk, fill the room. I swirled the last of the liquid in the glass and watched it catch at the sides and fall to the bottom before swirling it again and again and again like a child with a spinning top mesmerised by its simplicity. And when at last the time came to either leave without your surprise holiday or bite the bullet and reply, I looked at her, took the last of my whiskey and said, I worked here once, you know. Yes, Mother mentioned it. It wasn't a particularly nice place. Your great-grandfather Hugh was not an easy man. And as for your great-uncle Thomas, let's just say those men knew how to throw a punch. This here, see this. I pointed to my scar. That was him. Her brief glance and wince at my face was enough to lower her head and to give a sigh that felt more hopeless than any of her words gone before. She raised her fist to her mouth and looked off to a future I imagined she neither wanted nor asked for. I saw the tears well and glisten again. And it was then that I felt regret for drawing her in on a history that was not really hers to suggest a blame she had no power over. How much do you need? I asked. It took her by surprise as much as it did me, but there it was. How much do I need for what? She asked, slumping back into her chair, wiping at her eyes. To keep this place going. You said you wanted to sell it. How much not to? And that's how it began, my foray into the hotel trade, as simple as that. Robert, the solicitor, was killed trying to get me to reconsider. Are you mad, Morris? No one's investing in hotels, not around these parts anyway. Stick to the machines, man. But he never turned me. Do it, I told him, my fist landing on his desk, frightening the bejesus out of both of us. Never challenged me again. Emily, Robert and I have kept the secret of it. Sadie, you and Hilary have never known a thing but Molly. Molly knew. I told her. I met her long after the papers were signed, off out on one of my walks through the fields. She came up alongside me, then ran past me. I say she was twelve, nothing more. That is one of the things about her visits. I never knew what age she might be. I told her as she twirled about me, her eyes closed, spinning and spinning, laughing with the dizziness. I thought she'd not heard me, but before she left, whirling off into her nothingness again, she smiled and gave me a thumbs up. It was good enough for me. I hold a 45% share of this place. 45% of this stool with 100% of my arse sitting on it. 49% for this scar on my face for a robbed childhood and Thomas Dollard an enemy for life. What would you all have thought the night of the wedding had you known when we danced on its floors and ate its food and knew the happy couple slept in its bed that it was mine? It was my dark, shameful secret. It was nothing to be proud of. Nothing to boast about. Nothing I wanted the world to know. I have stayed away from it, not wanting to be reminded. That's what me and Emily agreed. I left her to it, 
the exemplary silent partner. Emily has steered the place through. Even when the recession hit six years back, she managed to hold her steady. Robert has acted as my agent, allowing me my freedom to remain outside of it, never allowing it to pull me into its lair. and I absolutely adore the book and it very deservedly won Newcomer of the Year on Wednesday night at the Irish Book Awards. Um, have you even had a chance to celebrate properly yet? Because you've, you've been so busy, you were with Ricochet and Dawn Ryan, I think just yesterday, last night, last yeah. night in Westport. Yeah. 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 Well, there's been no champagne drunk just yet, but there is a bottle at home. So, um, yeah, today is uh, one of, this is the final event of the year, so I'll be going home and uh, tomorrow and on uh, Tuesday night we'll be opening up the champagne bank okay. and it'll be lovely to to let it all sink in. It's been, it was a, it was an amazing moment to, to win it. I, I absolutely didn't expect it and was up out of my seat when, when Madeline um, Keane said the first word of the title she said and the winner is when and i stood up and then i was thinking oh dear god i hope nobody else has the title with when <laughs> because this would be really embarrassing um, <laughs> one of the things that really struck me about your main character is how much i was kind of drawn to like him even though he's actually he's no saint really you know he no, goodness he has his flaws you yeah, know yeah, so yeah. how did to kind of to walk that line with him when you were writing him as a character? I think I'm quite drawn to grumpy men. I think I'm fascinated <laughs> by grumpy men. And I have to say, I have to qualify that because my husband is not a grumpy man. In fact, he's, he's a really, really kind, happy, happy guy. But there's something about grumpy old men that I just, I'm fascinated by. I really want to know, why are you so grumpy? going on there um, but I'm also really drawn to silent men and the, and Morris is 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 a man who values his privacy so I knew I I wanted to create somebody who held that as being really important in his life um, so I don't know I, I suppose yes yeah, I'm always drawn to the grumpy old men and particularly I'm drawn to them in in other people's writing so my favourite author is Richard Russo, and he does grumpy men really, really well. Um, and he does them with, a, with a great humour. And so there are moments when, you know, I'm re my, my favourite all-time character is Donald Sullivan um, from um, Nobody's Fool. Um, and, you know, one minute he'd be saying something absolutely horrible to his best friend. I mean horrible. And the next minute he'll do something that's quite touching. And I'm back on Donald Sullivan's side, you know. So I wanted to do that. I wanted to tread that path um, and weave him in and out of that. But there are times, really, when, when you do, when, we, I, I, you know, I was, when I wrote some of the scenes, particularly the one about um, when, um, when Sadie, his wife, wants the cup of tea after the dinner, you know, um, and he's just, a cantankerous man because he won't buy the cup of tea because there's a perfectly good kettle at home, you know, that kind of thing. <laughs> um, and, you know, 
and I wanted him to buy her the cup of tea. Of course I wanted him to buy her the cup of tea, but, but that wasn't Maris Hannigan. I really enjoyed writing Maris Hannigan. And I really enjoyed writing his the voice of Maris Hannigan. And that's actually where I start with one of the first things he says is, you know, um, I have a deep voice, a deep sonorous voice, you know, and, and that was really important. Um, and I, you know, I felt like um, I was inside his head almost from the beginning, from the very first word I wrote of of uh, of Morris, and I knew exactly how he'd act in every situation. So it's lovely when you get to that point when you're writing, when you know your character's every move, and when you stick him somewhere like I brought him over to America to sit in a fancy restaurant with his son, and that nearly killed him. So it's always really, really good doing that with your with your characters, sticking them somewhere where you know they're just going to have a, a heart attack really. I was going to ask you something about the structure of the novel um, and you've partly answered that. In addition to the fact that there is this very solid structure of five toasts to five people that Cranky and Lumble Morris loved, yeah. there is also um, just to make it clear to people, there also is a plot. Yeah, so um, I really enjoyed doing the coin. The reason why I put the coin into the book was because there is a plot which um, essentially um, revolves around Morris's experience of working for the dollars in the big house. Now, I didn't want it to be a big house story at all, so this is just, it happens early on in the novel. And basically, uh, he has a very bad experience working for these people, and there's some, the, there's a really quite moving story about his older brother who, who dies of TB. And there's there's a story there about his mother uh, not being allowed home the day Tony actually dies because, I can't remember which, do Amelia Dollard um, is having people over that day for lunch and she wants her to cook for them. And so the mother the mother uh, misses the, the, the last moments of her son being alive. So Mars has a deep hatred of the dollars. And the only way when he was 16 that he felt he could get back at them, he spends the rest of his life trying to get back at them really, but the only way he felt he could he could get back at them um, was in this stealing of a coin. Not that he planned it, this mm. coin kind of literally lands in his lap one day from an, an open uh, bedroom upstairs at the house. The whole point was I wanted to have something to tie him to the dollars for the rest of his life. And so I thought, yes, I want him to steal something, but it has to be something small enough to sit in a, to fit in a pocket. What do you have in a pocket? Only coins. So therefore, I started to look at well, what valuable coins are out there? And so this uh, sovereign is does actually exist. In fact, there was there was um, quite a lot of, of coins minted um, before the abdication of uh, King Edward VIII, and um, they are actually quite valuable. The sovereigns are quite valuable, and um, so basically, I put it into the story, um, and. Um, I loved putting it in there. I loved how it kind of weaved its way. It came in and out of the story. So it's not always there. In, a, in one part of the chapter, it'll come back, and then it'll go out again, and you, he doesn't talk about it for, for years. But it, it, it is a very important part of a kind of a, 
a meeting, a reconciliation between Morris and the dollars at the end of the day. But it was great fun researching that mm. and realising that there was this coinage. And it, um, in the newspapers, it was called the coinage that never was at the time. Because and he abdicated. Because he abdicated. And, I, you know, there's this, all this coinage to do with Brexit that had to be pulled mm. there recently. So, yeah, a friend of mine was, like, texting me going, it's history repeating itself. Um, but that was great fun. I enjoyed doing yeah. that. Yeah. My name is Noelle Kelly Trindles and this is my story called Tang. Tang. The word evokes an image of my mother in my head, bronzed and beautiful. My earliest memory is of her slapping sun cream all over me before massaging oil into her golden limbs. My skin milky white and hers a rich amber colour. In the days before the bubble, they said a suntan was healthy for you. That was before the ozone completely disappeared and toxic gases polluted the skies. My mother was one of the resistors. I kissed her wrinkled, aging brown face before entering the bubble. She said she was a tough old bird and she couldn't survive inside a giant plastic orb. I like to think that the resistors are still out there. They don't want us to believe that. Giant TV screens show a clip of an escape on repeat. The man runs out of an outer passage. He turns and faces the sun, smiles for a second, then looks straight at the camera as his eyeballs turn milky white and his retinas burn. His skin peels off, floating into the atmosphere. He disintegrates into ash that drifts towards the blazing orange sun. They use that to frighten us. It works. I didn't lose hope the day I first saw that video, nor the day the scientists said I wasn't fit for procreation. The day that changed was when they came to take the movies and the books. Jared stood by the door, handing everything over without argument. I lost it, holding on to my prized possessions, shaking and screaming as Jared pried them out of my hands. I lost faith in the world and my marriage in that second. A blow to my head made my entire world spin and turn black. I woke in a hospital bed, groggy and blinded by fake lighting. Bland music played through hospital radio and the TV showed boring movies. The scientists quizzed me until I gave them the right answers, that I was happy to read and watch what the regulators allowed. This is a lie. Being surrounded by tedious movies, music and book makes my heart ache. I pray that they wouldn't take away my last salvation, my pains. Jared met someone else. Claudia could procreate, and they now have two perfect insipid children, one boy and one girl. I feel most sorry for the children. They will never feel the warmth of the sun on their faces, never walk through crunchy autumn leaves, never run into the Atlantic on a warm summer's day to feel their toes immediately freeze, never make a snowman. Here in the bubble, everything is ambient. The temperature is mild, and the fake protein and vegetables all taste the same. I paint and paint and paint, surrounding myself with memories of life before the bubble. Vivid scenes of people watching the sunrise in Ibiza, husky rides through snowy Lapland, cafes in Paris. Every night in my dreams, I travel the old world. Those memories make me feel alive. The hours drag. I think maybe I should escape. Would it be worth it to feel the warmth of the sun on my face? 
I dream that one day we will be able to tan our skins once more. My name is Brian Keane. This is an excerpt from my memoir, Hungry Ghosts. The hunchback's fingers are a vice grip on my damaged shoulder. Jin cha, Lila. He shakes me to more banging on the door. The police are here, he whispers again, loud enough to wake the dead. Raising my head the bare inch of a guilty man, I give my voice a go. Dungy cha! but the sound unrolls like old newspaper. The banging only grows fatter, so I fling myself out of bed, naked, and, fast as he can hobble, the hunchback moves out of my way. Wait a minute, I shout, proper this time, and the bad noise stops. Running round the apartment, I stick weed and hash and other paraphernalia in a bag, then hide it in the bathroom ceiling. The whole place reeks of fags with a hint of feet. Both ashtrays are overflowing, and there must be a dozen empty bottles on my desk. Beer, wine, and one large Chinese Jinjo, the bad bastard. Sully used to say, Jinjo is the fastest way of getting the cops without using a phone. <laughs> Another clatter on the metal door, and this time it almost raises a smile. The breath rasping in me like a fellow with one lung, and fumbling with the buttons on my jeans, I open the door. But there's only a single uniform in the stairwell, and he has no gun, just a half-cop, so I relax a bit. If it was the real deal, there'd be two, armed, and I'd be wanted for serious shit. Behind him stands a young couple in his and hers chinos and pastel v-neck jumpers, his butter yellow, hers virgin Mary blue. <laughs> Poor fuckers don't know how to take me, a semi-naked foreigner with a mushroom cloud for a head. <laughs> The cop removes his hat, but the grease crease stays on his oily hair. Woman Banty and Dong Nila, we've been waiting half the day for you. I give my ginger stubble a good rake. Yoshima sure, what's the issue? He garbles on, and either last night totally decimated the Mandarin part of my brain, or he's speaking Kung Minghua, the local language. It's definitely got something to do with a car mirror, though. The v-necked couple crane their necks to look in my door as the cold light of the morning sun intensifies in its attempt to shame me. The bottles above the boot-shaped hole in the cupboard, the homeless cripple lurking by my spare room, the diagrams, post-its, and a whiteboard covered in indecipherable English, all more than enough to label me a hairy spy and have me carted off to the gulag without so much as an unfair hearing. <laughs> Still operating in Kung Minghua, the half-cop paraphrases loudly from some important-looking document. I only understand about 10%, but every time he looks up, I meet his eyes and nod, saying, How? Dwe? How? Without an iota what I'm agreeing to. All of a sudden, I realize my feet are bare on the cold concrete, and I wrap my arms round my chest and bounce on my toes to ward off the shivers. Can't be the shakes yet. I put money on it, I'm still drunk. But the jaw's hanging off me for want of a drink, a joint, and or good strong pills. And somewhere in the midst of this dissonance, it registers that today is Christmas Day, and I want rid of these guys fast. What about this mirror? I aim my question at the v-necked male. I remember fuck all since the restaurant, but since the state of my gaff, 
and the unexplained hunchback. It's got to be said, there's a fighting chance I did whatever they're accusing me of. <laughs> Silencing this voice, I do a deal with my head to bury the evidence and tough it out, at least till I have the full picture. The squeaky-looking man takes center stage. You, he points at me, index finger wagging with indignation or fear. You kick, he mimics a kick, then points at the pastel woman. The mirror of our car, while broken, his voice rising to a child's pitch. Neaty woman, the ming bai, I cut him off. But why do you think I did this? We have video. <laughs> the woman's eyes stay on her tan boat shoes. My face readjusts to brazen, but like a dodgy poker bluff with the chips already in the pot, my stomach has left the building. Still, I've 20 years of druggy carnage under my belt. I can ride this one out. Happy Christmas. Fiction at the Friary and on Campus was presented by Madeleine Darcy and Danielle McLaughlin. Location introductions by J.P. Quinn. Produced by Kieran Hurley for UCC 98.3 FM. This programme was funded by the Broadcasting Authority of Ireland with the television licence fee.